Hello, this is Leslie Gorka Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. Securing a federal clerkship post-graduation is one of the most prestigious and most interesting experiences for any law school grad. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking about the clerkship experience with Professor Leslie Gilo Jacobs, the Justice Kennedy Professor of Law and Executive Director of the Capital Center for Law and Policy at McGeorge Law School. After graduating from law school, Professor Jacobs clerked first for the Honorable Louis F. Oberdorfer in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, and then secured the pinnacle of clerkship positions with the Honorable Louis F. Powell, Jr. at the United States Supreme Court. Today, she is here to discuss her experience and share insights about the interactions between clerks, judges, and justices, and the process of drafting opinions. Professor Jacobs' clerkships are stellar, and most of us are not fortunate to obtain such prestigious positions. But if you are able, secure a clerkship post-graduation. And if you have any doubt about the thrill or even the benefits of the experience, this conversation will convince you to seize the opportunity. Welcome, Professor Jacobs, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. So you had two very different um, experiences, one in the district court and one in the Supreme Court. Tell me a little bit about each, I guess, first. Well, they're both wonderful experiences, but indeed they're different. And so a district court clerkship is even different from a circuit court clerkship, like a court of appeals clerkship, because a district court clerkship is the first place that the plaintiffs go to have their cases. And so there's just one tr- one judge and you clerk for one judge. Usually the judge has two clerks. And so we divided the cases up between ourselves. And one interesting thing about the District of Columbia uh, District Court, as compared to other district courts, is uh, other district courts have a very heavy criminal docket. And so they'd have lots and lots of criminal trials, Mm -hmm. which can be interesting. But the District of Columbia has all the federal agencies there. And so cases brought against the government are brought first in the district court. So we could get a bunch of interesting policy cases. And I certainly was able to um, do that and work on that. So, you know, it's interesting. You say there's two clerks. You know, we think about the judges writing their opinions. We know they have clerks. What's your role at the district court level in helping the judge to issue opinions? Well, what we did is with the clerks, we divided all the cases he had between ourselves. And so they were odd and even numbered. And that's the way we did it. (laughs) And then if we were in charge of the cases, then we would follow them all the way through. And so often with these types of cases that would be uh, not a trial, they'd have a summary judgment motion. And so I would be in charge of writing a memo about it to the judge and saying, this is how I suggest you do it, or this is what the issues are. And the memo would prepare him for oral argument. And then he would go in having read it, and then he'd be able to ask questions of the counsel. And then after the oral argument, then he'd say, this is what I wanna do. And so indeed, as a clerk, I would write the opinion and then he would edit it. uh, But there was a lot of responsibility for writing on the clerk. So and just generally speaking, we're not going to talk about any judge in particular. Do you get the sense that as a rule, the clerks write the opinions more than the judges write the opinions? Or does it depend on just are some judges more interested in writing their own opinions? How does that play out? I can't say how it works all over. I will say that with both of my clerkships, I wrote the opinions, but I wrote the opinions really with this understanding that what I was doing was channeling the judge. And so I wasn't writing what I thought, 
Although I was writing, I must say my style of writing will come through, mm -hmm. but I was writing opinions, uh, especially at the Supreme Court level that I just didn't even agree with. That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> but that wasn't my job. And my mm -hmm. job was to bring all the arguments to the judge or justices, let them know about them, and then uh, to have them decide how should this opinion go. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't feel like I was the judge, but I did feel like I was helping the judge do the judge's job, which is everything else and think about things. But, oh, the judges depend a lot upon those clerks for writing. That's amazing. And, you know, I'm thinking about it. So a clerkship generally, and I'm talking more at the district court level, not the Supreme Court yet, but the clerkships last a year, right? So there must be kind of, you must be, have to get up to speed within five minutes, right? Because I don't think the judges have the luxury, you know, it's like a cycle. I keep thinking of like a hamster trail, the one you're in, you're out. And so here are these judges who sit on the bench for sometimes life and they're always finding new personalities and new writing styles. How does that play out? Well, it's a very interesting system. And I do think that uh, more and more judges are going towards either two-year clerks and cycling them in and out, or having some have uh, long-term clerks. For example, the California Supreme Court, they've got, that's a job that the people mm -hmm. have. Uh, and so they aren't cycling them in and out. But yes, yeah, certainly uh, it's an interesting system that they're just choosing very eager young law students who did well in school and then to come in and just be a lot of energy and focus for that period of time. I think possibly their thought as well is that then the uh, students aren't as invested in policy outcomes. Mm -hmm. That is perhaps we're more willing as students to channel the judges and say, okay, this isn't my idea. I'm not going to put you know, I'm not the judge. I'm going to try to listen as hard as I can and uh, reflect what you would say in this opinion. Did you ever find, I mean, I know you probably had such limited experience, you know, limited to your own experience, but did you ever find clerks who tried to sway a judge or clerks who didn't, could not wholesale agree with the judge so that it just didn't work out? I mean, have you ever heard any stories about that kind of thing? I am aware of, uh, yes, clerks swaying trying to sway uh, yeah. judges and justices. Uh, yeah, I am. Well, that's, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that has imagined. The other thing, I mean, this is such a basic question, but I've always been in awe of the fact that judges know so much about so much or have time to get up to speed about so much. I mean, I, I tell my students all the time, take every course you possibly can, because when you get out, you're going to focus on this little piece of law, but judges have to know everything about everything, right? Well, they do, but they have help. Uh, that's what the clerks are for, but also that's what the counsel are for and the counsel are filing the briefs. And so they have that sort of information, but true, they have to get up to speed on each of the issues as it comes and many more than lawyers do to the extent that they're um, working hard on big cases. But lawyers also have to have a lot of different cases on their plate and come up with, you know, understand all the different nuances of what's going on with them or they I mean I'm aware in litigation firms of you know, lawyers say this is kind of fun because right. I can learn about automobiles one time and then I move on and I learn about uh, genetics and so indeed judges have to do that as well right 
Um, all right, so let's pivot to the Supreme Court of the United States. I guess, can, can you contrast that with your experience at um, the uh, district court? I mean, this sure, one's a trial just, court and one's a trial court, but just generally speaking. Yes, yes. And I'll say that yeah, even the people who were clerking at the Court of Appeals had a much more relaxed existence than the district court clerks. I will say, before we leave the district court, one of the big excitements of working on the district court in the District of, of Columbia was the emergency orders that we would hear having to do with the government agencies. So for example, one night, there we were Friday night, you know, five o'clock getting ready to leave, and we got this emergency petition about a Russian sailor, and actually the Soviet Union still existed. It shows how old I am. It was about <laughs> not to, but he jumped off a grain boat down in Louisiana. And then the Immigration and Naturalization Service was involved because he was seeking asylum. And so these agencies came in and the news cameras were all outside and they yeah. were seeking an immediate order to get it so that the Immigration and Naturalization Service would not deliver this sailor back to the boat. And so there we were all hands on deck and you know, thinking about what to do, talk about having to get up to speed. We had to look at the asylum law. And then an hour later, the council came in and we're arguing. And then my judge issued a, a decision even within a few hours. And then I always remember this, the DC Court of Appeals had to get out of bed, three of them, and come down for an emergency hearing at midnight that night. Wow. <laughs> that was very, very exciting. Uh, and, but that's the type of thing that you can get as a, a district court that mm -hmm. you don't tend to get in the Court of Appeals because it's longer time, things are scheduled. And that's true with the Supreme Court as well. That is, uh, it, it goes by terms. And so the arguments start on first Monday in October, right. but we start in the summer as clerks and we cycled in every week. We, there were four clerks mm -hmm. uh, that, at the Supreme Court. I clerked Four clerks for each judge. Justice. For each judge. Well, yeah, they could have different numbers, but uh, most of them had four. Okay. And so we had four, and again, we divided cases. But uh, what we would, uh, it's true that uh, we would go to the hearings of the cases that we were assigned to. But other than that, we weren't interacting with counsel uh, mm -hmm. or uh, you know, having anybody run in or do things. It was more calm in that sort of way, or a very heavy um, preparing a memo, explaining things to the justice, and then writing the opinion. So that is how it's different. Uh, different to, I suppose, in the kind of opinion you're writing, because you are reviewing something that the lower courts have already found the facts about. And so in the district court, you're finding the facts. Right. And you also can have jury trials. And that can right. be interesting too. You have to get in panel a jury and have the counsel arguing in that sort of way. So there's a greater variety of things going on. But of course, at the Supreme Court, you're dealing with pretty big issues. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's like is, really uh, cool. <laughs> well, it, it is. And it is uh, somewhat of an irony uh, for law students that you can have your most exciting and most powerful times you feel most powerful at the very beginning of your career. Right. And then you have to go back into an office and beg a clerk to take your phone call. So <laughs> it's eye opening. That's pretty funny. So I guess, I, I mean, I know you've said that you um, write the opinions for the judges and for the justices when you're at the Supreme Court. But one of the things that students and, and, and lay people seem to think is a mystery is how it's decided who writes an opinion in terms of which justice writes a particular opinion. Can you explain that to us? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a system, uh, which is, so they go into oral argument 
and they sit through the oral argument and then whatever cases that they heard in oral argument on Friday, they meet in conference and they meet in this conference, it's just them. And supposedly they have a seating order similar to how they seat on the bench with a, you know, kind of in a pyramid, the most powerful or senior in the middle and then going out and the most junior justice has to open and close the door apparently. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But then they they go around and they uh, take their votes on the cases. And certainly when Justice Powell was there, he would take little notes about what people said. Uh, But then once the votes are in and it's apparent uh, that there's a majority and that there's a dissent, then it's the most senior justice in either the majority or the dissent who assigns the opinion to another justice. And so, uh, for example, the chief justice will always be able to sign an opinion because he'll be the most senior wherever he is. Um, But then it goes by seniority as far as years. So the most senior justice can assign the opinion to him or herself, or they can assign it to another justice. How do they make that decision? Well, there's no question that the chief keeps important cases. Right. Um, I mean, for example, just yesterday, there was, or two days ago, uh, there was oral argument in the uh, student loan case that where, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. You know, whether in fact, President Biden and the education agency have the power to do the loan forgiveness. And it, it, quite clear the courts can rule they do not but even looking at uh, the chief justice comments it's i don't know i'm gonna bet that he's gonna assign himself that opinion Hmm. Uh, he feels very strongly about it and wants to make points about that and uh, doctrine and so he has the power to do that but certainly won't keep them all himself Uh, they distribute them in a in an even sort of way to the justice i was gonna ask that like is it equitable at the end of the day? I mean, does the chief judge try to say, well, I've had six, I wanna make sure everyone else gets their fair share of writing opinions? I would say number-wise it's equitable. As far as importance of the decision, you can make your own judgment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, you know, the more power you have, the more you can uh, be able to, to keep important decisions. Mm-hmm. And so as far as the rest of the process goes, if you want to know, then the person gets a a justice gets assigned an opinion and so comes back and says all right let's write it and so to the extent that they're relying upon the clerks the clerks get to work and write it and they get to lots of work I mean even back in the day when I was a clerk Justice Powell there were six days of formal work you know he'd be in on Saturdays we'd be in on Saturdays okay yeah and you you might stay another day too because there's so much to do Uh, but you'd write the opinion and then go back and forth with the justice because the justice absolutely edits the opinion mm-hmm. or um, what the justice may do. And I know Justice Powell did at one point, uh, I wrote an opinion in a major case and then he gave it to one of the other clerks to then edit the case. Mm-hmm. And then you know he had his comments. So we had a team working on this opinion, but once the chamber gets the opinion in order, then the judge justice circulates it to the other justices. And at least when I was there, it might be interesting to know that the justices don't talk to each other that much about the decisions. They oh, really? communicate through their, their clerks. Huh. <laughs> and so the opinions would go out. And then if any of the justices had concerns or wanted to join it or not join it, uh, then if I had written the opinion and I was assigned to it, then the clerks would come to me and we would talk about it. And I do remember one opinion where I sat down with the other clerk and we just changed word, this word, that word, this word, this, because the justices you feel strongly 
about the points that are made, but also how the rules are applied. And anyway, it's that type of negotiation outside the chamber that happens. And then ultimately what you're working towards as a justice is to get these, well, I, I don't know if they do it this way, but when I was there, I was on this little stationery that had their name and they would write, I join. And then they would sign their name huh. and they would send it to you. Mm-hmm. And you would receive these little join notes. Wow. And of course you have to count to five. Uh, and once you have five joins, you have your majority opinion. Um, of course, you'd be looking for joins by everybody who voted in the majority. But then once the uh, majority opinion is circulated by the majority justice, then the dissent has something to work against and will create a dissent and then goes through the same process, circulating the dissent mm-hmm. and getting joins. And you know, in some of these, in a few cases, things have changed. That's what I'm wondering. Do people say in the room, I'm going to vote against, and then the majority opinion, they change their mind? Yep, it has happened. Yes, in major cases. And so uh, it didn't happen in my term, but Mm -hmm. the writing of the opinion can cause justices to reflect, and maybe they are talking to each other more. I mean, in that sort of instance, going to each other's chambers and having conversations. So that would be happening without the clerks there. So it's a, it's a it's a complex process that's going on to try to come up with this opinion, mm-hmm. which you know, number one is a result, but two, it's an explanation, as we know, about what the reasoning is, which can become so consequential in yeah. other you know, decisions in the lower courts. And then as far as future things that the court will rule on. Yeah, especially like um, in a plurality too, you know, like the language really matters. Oh, so, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that, so I, that raises another question for me, and this kind of goes a little bit to back to last term, but, you know, the most consequential cases seem to be distributed, at, released is the word I'm looking for, at the end of the term, right? So they heard the loan forgiveness forgiveness case yesterday, but we may not find out until June what the result is. And we they did Gonzalez versus um, uh, Google a couple of days ago, which dealt with um, social media law. Again, we may not find out. But you're not, you guys, the, the justices and their clerks, I'm assuming, I, I'm asking actually, do you write them in the moment and then just hold them? And I ask that for two reasons. I guess one reason is because what happened with Dobbs last year when it was released early, but also this idea that it seems to me that it it should be written when it's fresh. And if that's the case, why do they wait until the end of the term to release it? Well, I'm not aware of them holding opinions to release them. I mean, certainly when I was there, they came out after it had gone through this whole process. Uh And so the explanation that I think is most often true is that the more controversial cases take longer to go through this process. Okay. The justices take longer to write the thing. Mm -hmm. Then it goes around. It takes longer for even the justices in the majority opinion to write, you know, to decide if they're going to join. And yes, then we've had more concurrences nowadays than when I was doing this. And so if a justice is writing a concurrence, then they have to do that. And so it's that process that takes so long. And I think we've heard too, that since the Dobbs release of that opinion, the court is having more internal security processes going mm-hmm. on as far as I don't even know what, but it's 
maybe slowing the process down as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, there may be some instances where there'd be concern about reaction and they release them late. But in my experience, it's often just the chief justice cracking the whip and saying, okay, you know, end of June is the end of June and we're going to get these things all out. I see, I see. (laughs) How many were you, how many opinions were you juggling at a time then? Uh, Let's see. I mean, you know, approximately, I guess. Well, I'm just trying to think. I mean, nowadays, well, there's about, there probably would have been about 100 when I was there. So each of us would have had about 25 of them. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you're doing a lot less juggling if you're not writing it. And so, right. you know, you, you may, it's much harder to be writing the opinion. But then again, maybe you'll be writing a concurrence. And so that would come in. And the other thing that you're uh, juggling too, I should point out, are the petitions for review that come in to oh, the right. Supreme Court. Right. Yes. And so that's like an ongoing process, yeah, that's huge. which is uh, most of the justices participate in what's called a cert pool. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of how many participate now. And actually, the, it might have changed. Uh, I don't know the answer. But when I was there, uh, justices participated in a cert pool and it wasn't, you know, by political ideology. Almost all of them did. And so the clerks for one for, were one chamber. Mm-hmm. would write a review of the case and it would circulate to all the justices to see what the case is and um, what the arguments are to, for granting review or not granting review, and then uh, would make a decision about that. And so you'd be writing these cert petitions, we called them, and then uh, the justices would be meeting. Those Friday meetings might involve not just what to vote on opinions, but they can also be reviewing these petitions mm-hmm. and deciding whether to grant the petitions or to deny them. And so that's an ongoing process as well. Hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, I my biggest regret when I was in law school, I didn't even know the clerking was a thing then, you know, and I'm really, I regret that deeply because it really sets you up for everything in the practice of law, right? It gives you a chance to kind of experience everything hone your writing and that kind of thing. Oh gosh, it's such a great experience. And then you're just plopped right into the middle of things. Again, I'd say in the district court, you really super are, yeah. uh, but obviously at the Supreme Court you are, but in a court of appeals and then also in state courts too, they're doing dealing with these exciting issues. And so you get this excitement of having, as you said, different issues come to you that maybe challenging to master, but at the same time are very interesting. And then you can feel such productivity because what you're doing has, has an impact. Uh, yes, and lives on forever, impact. right? These are, they're yeah. all in reporters or in a database now. And so it's, it's do, you, do you ever think about, I mean, do we ever come across, you know, coincidentally come across opinions that you drafted? Coincidentally, not. not so much, but I, I know where they are and I can find them. Yeah. And I actually teach. I mean, like opening up a casebook and say, oh, <laughs> that was yes, nice. exactly right. Well, when you write for a Supreme Court justice, that's going to happen. And I'm going to emphasize again, it's the justice's opinion. Right. They are using the clerks as, as tools mm-hmm. to elucidate uh, for everybody what, what they themselves want to say. Right. This has been so enlightening. It really has really interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience with us. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to do so. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day.